Let's take our Bible tonight. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. And uh, this is a familiar study for all of us. We've, we've touched on this text, and this will all tie together, and really just the basic doctrine that we know as Christians. Uh, but I think it's interesting to see it in connection with Christmas and with the coming of Christ, His advent into the world. And uh, I've titled the message, The First Christmas Prophecy. The First Christmas Prophecy. And um, it's really the first prophecy in general for Christ's coming into the world. And uh, as you read it, it may be somewhat obscure at first, but when you look at what this text actually communicates, it's a glorious prophecy of what the Savior would come to do. And so it'll be a brief reminder for us tonight, and I pray it be a blessing to us. Uh, verse number 14 of Genesis 3, verse 15, 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the servant, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You, know, you come down to verse 15, and it seems somewhat like of an obscure uh, text, in a sense. What's really being said? What's being communicated? But I think what we look at with this is we see the bigger picture, really, of the gospel and why Christ came into the world. You know, our minds are always centered upon the coming of Christ to the world, and uh, we think about Christmas. We see manger scenes at this time of year. We see baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph and, and the wise men. And, and all of the different things that surround this event. Uh, and a lot of times we focus on the passages in the New Testament of the coming of Christ, which are great and wonderful, but you can also glean so much just from Old Testament passages and how, how the prophets of Christ tie together. And I think we all know this. We're all, I think, pretty seasoned in the Word of God that the Old Testament is saturated with prophecies about Christ. And if we miss Christ in all of Scripture, we've missed the point of Scripture. It communicates Jesus to us, communicates the glory of God centered upon Christ and His redemptive work. And we know that the triune God is all at work in that, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. But Christ is at the centerpiece, right? He is to have the preeminence in all things, Colossians tells us. And so prophecies, we know prophecies are history written in advance. That's how a simple uh, simply put it and simply describe prophecy, it's history written in advance. And who can do that but the one who governs history? It's God alone, right? He's the one who has set this all in motion. And many people this time of year, they really have no clue why this baby in the manger scene is so prevalent and celebrated by so many. Why was the birth of Christ expected? Why, is, why did Christ come into the world? Why is Christ deemed the Savior of mankind? Well, we can actually find the answer all the way here back in the book of Genesis. It's in verse 15 where we first see the promise of a coming Savior into the world. In fact, many deem verse 15, they label it in theological terms, the proto-evangelium, which means the first announcement of the gospel. The first announcement of the gospel right here in Genesis 3.15. And so let's look at just a few things regarding this text and we'll tie it all together. And uh, then we'll pray after we get done with this Bible study. Notice with me in our notes, number one, the prophecy was prophesied because of sin that had happened. Because of sin, this prophecy is given. And you'll notice that sin, firstly, it is introduced by Satan. 
Now, we're familiar how we get to our text here. It's in the middle of something that's bigger going on in the narrative of chapter 3. And so let's just read, just for our memory's sake, verse 1 down through verse 13, which will tie us into verse number 14 and 15. You'll notice here in verse 1 of chapter 3 in Genesis, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And thus we read, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Just like that, we find man, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, in a state of innocence in literally a perfect world. Literally a perfect world with no sin, no corruption, and all of a sudden, here we find them fallen in sin. Fallen, disobedience to him. How did, how did that disobedience come about? We know that Adam and Eve, they are directly responsible for their disobedience. But there's something here that influences their disobedience, and that influence is none other than the serpent. Well, who is this serpent, and why does this serpent act in such a way? Well, we learn from Scripture just who this serpent is. Revelation 12 and verse 9, John the Apostle describes him. He says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Satan is twice called that old serpent. And there's no doubt that this serpent is none other than Lucifer, Satan, the devil himself. And we find that his practice here is that of deception. He was more crafty, the scripture says here, In chapter 3, he was more crafty as a serpent than all the other beasts of the field. And we know this is the nature of Satan, that he is deeply deceptive in ways that we may not even recognize. And so he, having already fallen into evil himself, 
He has set his eyes upon the crown of God's creation. And what is the crown of God's creation, church? Man. Mankind. Not necessarily the animals, the trees, it's man. Why is man the crown of God's creation? Because man was made in the image of God. He has set his eyes upon, his target upon, the image bearers, those whom God has made in his image. And so what we find here is that he promised them these things and he's deceived them. He promised them they would be like God, but instead they became depraved sinners. And as sinners, they are now estranged from God, separated from that holy fellowship they once had with God. Can you just imagine for a moment that kind of fellowship that Adam and Eve had long ago? Unbroken. Fellowshipping with God. It was a normal thing for God to come into the Garden of Eden and to fellowship with Adam and Eve. But the evidence of their fallen nature is seen in their behavior when they heard God coming. What did they do? They don't run to greet God. In fact, what we find, they hide themselves. They hide themselves from their holy creator, the one whom gave them life. Rather than embracing him, from praising him, they run from him. And you'll notice what else they did. They attempted to cover their nakedness. A picture of their own works trying to cover their sin, which would not fit. And so we find from this text forever the nature of humanity had changed and could not be reversed by man. And so now that man is in such a state, he is destitute in his sin, and he is easily deceived by that old serpent. In fact, you'll find that Paul warned the Corinthian church of Satan's crafty ways of deceiving them. He tells them in 2 Corinthians eleven three, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning... Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You say, well, wait a minute. Aren't they the church? Aren't they Christians? Yes. But you understand that even though you're a Christian, even though you've been born again, that doesn't eliminate the fallen flesh you still inhabit in which you are still prone to being deceived and led astray by the crafty one, by the deceiver. So we see what sin has, what Satan has done. He has influenced evil into the world, although man is responsible for his evil. But letter B, we see that sin, what has it done? It has devastated humanity, brought devastation to us. Not only depravity, but also uh, more than that. There's addition to that. It's brought death. It's brought a, a, a corruption to our nature, which is depravity. But you'll notice also that with depravity also comes something that is mentioned specifically in verse 15. It's that little word called enmity. Enmity. God says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. What is enmity? Enmity literally refers to a hostile disposition. A hostile disposition. Now, where is this hostile disposition found? Well, from this text and from the whole of the Bible, you're going to find it found in different places, many places. First thing I'll point out to you is that it is found both in Satan and in man. This hostile disposition is found in the devil, it's in his heart, but then it's also found in man, in his heart. And we can see a few ways in which this is manifested in Scripture and in history. There is a hostile disposition in Satan towards the whole of mankind. You understand, Satan has a hatred for mankind. He has no goodwill towards man in what? whatsoever way you may think of. 
He is at war with mankind, seeking to deceive them and destroy them. That's how he operates. Satan's heart is darker and more evil than anything you and I could possibly imagine. Now, we see lots of evil in this world, but that's only scratching the surface of the heart of the devil himself. You see, were it not for God's restraining hand, (laughs) there's no telling what Satan would do. You see, this enmity between Satan and man is seen in the hostile disposition between man and man. You see, it didn't take long for man and man to be at odds with each other. How long did it take? How long did it take for man and man to be at odds with each other? How about the first two people born into the world, right? Cain and Abel. And most believe they were twins, which I tend to lean they, they lean that direction. The Bible says Eve conceived once, but she bore two sons. And, and so there's two brothers, regardless of whether they're twins or not. There's two brothers here, and Cain rises in hatred and kills his brother. 1 John 3.12, John describes it this way, and here's what I want you to note. We should not be like Cain, who was what? Of the evil one, right? He was evil, and he murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. You understand there are people in this world that are of the evil one, of the evil one. Remember what Jesus said to the Jews who rejected him and thought they were holy and righteous just because Abraham was their father? He said to them, you are of your father who? The devil. They thought they were God's people, but they were not. And so what you find here is that there are righteous, those who belong to Christ. There are those who are evil, those who belong to the devil. Cain was of the devil, of the evil one. And you see the enmity of him against the people of God. And it reads further. We see this further in the book of Revelation and through other passages. Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Satan wages war against the people of God. And how does he do that? He uses other people to do that. Not only did enmity affect Satan and man, it also affected the relationship between man and God. You see, because of man's sinful nature, he is not... He is at enmity not only with his fellow man, but also his own creator. Revelation 8, 7. The Bible tells us the mind that is set on the flesh is what? Hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Romans 8, 7. The mind that is set on the flesh. What mind is set on the flesh? That is the natural course of man's mind. Without Christ, every man's mind is set on the flesh. Jesus puts it this way, John 3.20, everyone who does wicked things is indifferent towards the light, does not come to the light, but lest his work should be exposed. I didn't read that right, did I? Man is has a hatred towards the light. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. He's not indifferent towards the light. He hates the light. He despises the light. He does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. This is the very reason Adam hid from his holy creator. His holy creator, by his very nature, exposes his sin. That, friend, is why the holiness of God is such a vital attribute in doctrine. 
It is central to his very character and his being. His holiness exposes not only the glory of who he is, but the vileness of who we are. Without the holiness of God, we have no gospel. So given this, given what we see in this little declaration in Genesis, mankind needs a savior or else he's going to forever be damned in his sin. So he's telling the serpent and mankind what is to come. Because of sin, this prophecy is given. Leads us to let number two. The, prophe- the prophecy, this Christmas prophecy, I say, promised a specific seed to come into the world, a specific offspring. You'll notice that the seed would be the woman's offspring, the woman's offspring. Now, now God speaks next in this little, little, little prophecy about an offspring to come, and we know that all descendants of humanity would come from who? The first couple, right? All of us trace our lineage all the way back just to two people. Two people. Not monkeys or not anything else like that. Two people. Adam and Eve. A man and a woman. Not Adam and Steve. Adam and Eve. Okay? That's important today too. Genesis 3.20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. We all trace our lineage back to Eve. And so what we find with this is that the promise that Eve is going to bear a seed is a given. She's going to give birth to children, and that's going to start the, the, the role of population in the earth. But the promise that Eve would have offspring, this offspring here, is more specific than just humanity in general. There is a specific, singular seed, offspring, that is promised to come from the line of the woman. Not plural, but specific. You see, the rest of Genesis traces the woman's offspring, beginning with Eve's son Seth and ending all the way with the, through the sons of Jacob. If you go in your Bible to Luke chapter number 3, and we see the genealogies, one of the two genealogies we have of Jesus. This one ties into the lineage of Mary, who is the woman, because we know that both lineages are important. Joseph's lineage is important, though he's not the actual father, only a human father. It wasn't his seed that produced Jesus. Both of these lineages are important to prove the credentials of Christ as the Messiah. But in this particular genealogy, you see, Joseph's in Matthew 1 goes all the way back to Abraham. To show he's the one that was promised to come through Abraham and, and through King David, the kingly line. While this also does this, but it goes back a little further. In verse 23, you read Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Eli. Now, that's significant because the son of Eli, that ties into Mary's parents, okay? Mary's parents, all right? So this is the in-laws. And it goes down through Mary's lineage. And I'm not going to read all these names, probably just to save myself some embarrassment trying to pronounce them all. All right? But you know they're there. You can read them if you want. Just jump down to verse 38 and look at where Luke takes us. Not just to Abraham, but all the way down to the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God lowercase s, 
meaning he's the first one created that way. So what does Luke teach us? What is Luke doing? He's showing us the connection, the seed of the woman in Mary ties all the way back to the very first people in the world. And so you see how important this lineage is. And what do you find here in the days of Christ's birth? We find a young virgin girl named Mary. We just preached on her Sunday morning. We saw her. The announcement comes to her. The woman's offspring. She would be the one to bear the Messiah. The one who would crush the serpent. The one who would stomp upon his head. This man born of Mary would be the deliverer. Because he would not be like the other men of this world as the former ones like Seth or Abel or any of the others. He would be the God-man. And as we know the miracle of how this happened, Luke 1.35, after Mary said, How can this be? The angel said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You understand there's not any other man ever born in history that you could say is holy. None. Except this one. Except this one. Because this one is the God-man. And what's interesting to note is that really the first in the first Christmas prophecy here in Genesis 3.15, you really see the undertone of the virgin birth even way back then. What do you say? Because this seed would come from a woman, not a man. It would be her offspring and not his. The virgin birth is foreshadowed, and really you can see it within this text itself. But the rest of Scripture confirms it. The Gospels confirm it, which ties us to the prophecy in Isaiah. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And what exactly would this deliverer do for us? You recall what Jesus said in his ministry, why he came into the world. John 12, 27 through 28. He says, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come into this world, come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. You know, often throughout the book of John, Jesus talks about his hour arriving. His hour arriving. His hour is not yet come, but now his hour has come. And what does he say? Shall I ask God, ask Father to eliminate this hour from me? Rather, instead, he says, I'm going to glorify God in this hour. And what is this hour that he speaks of? So often, it is the hour, the time, the appointment of his death. His death. The act of redemption. The work of salvation. Through his blood atonement on the cross. Bearing the judgment of sinners. It is the hour in which he would set captives free. And it is for this purpose that Jesus has come into the world to do what God promised long ago in his words to that old serpent. Christ, the seed of the woman, would come to redeem his people and give them victory and crush the enemies who had so worked against the crown of God's creation. You see, the Christmas scene of the Savior born into the world begins all the way back in Genesis 3, 15. 
it was prophesied. Not only do we see that with the seed would come through a woman's offspring, we also recognize that the seed would be at war with Satan. <laughs> at war with Satan, because there is in this text enmity between who? Satan and the offspring of the woman. So that ties not only to Satan's enmity against humanity, but also his enmity against Christ himself, against the Messiah. Now, what should we think Satan's disposition would be towards Jesus, God in the flesh? It was hostility upon hostility. We see this in the very beginning, even when Jesus was young, not long after he was born. What happens? We find King Herod, a man who was evil, influenced of the devil, no doubt, depraved. When he saw he was tricked by the wise men, he wanted to kill this King Jesus. Matthew 2.16 tells us, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that had he had ascertained from the wise men. You talk about a, an evil, narcissistic man who is, is he's, he's bent towards eliminating any kind of threat to his throne. And that's what he does. He kills all male children. Do you understand what this is? This was an all-out assault to try to kill the Messiah, to kill the seed that came into the world that God had promised would come into the world, the seed, the one and so, surely, if Satan could rid the world of this promised seed while he's an infinite, surely that might make him victorious. You think Satan forgot about what God told him long ago? Not at all. You understand, Satan, he's not all-knowing, and he doesn't see into the future. He's not God. Sometimes I think we kind of make him out to be. He's not omnipresent. He's not all-powerful. But in, a, in, a, in an ironic way, he only, he's the great deceiver, but yet at the same time he's kind of deceived himself into thinking there's some chance, some hope that he could rival the Almighty. How foolish he is. He could not overturn or undermine the sovereign hand of God. But his hostility, you understand it, it shows itself in multiple of ways. Not only there at the birth of Christ with the attempt to kill all these little children, trying to eliminate him, but he not only destroyed, tried to, 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 you don't see his, inf his enmity not only in his infancy, but look at the ministry of Christ. Jesus is confronted by Satan multiple times. Jesus had to confront and overcome the temptation of Satan as the head of man. He had to succeed where Adam failed. Matthew 4.1, what do we read? Jesus, after his baptism led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. You notice that? The Spirit of God led Jesus to be tempted. Not tempted him, but led him to where he would have to overcome this. He had to. He must. But you think about the temptation that comes upon Christ. We often don't think deeply about what this is going on. Because, yes, he's God, but he's also a real man, okay? So in a sense, he's experiencing real temptation while at the same time, it's impossible for him to sin. But that doesn't negate the fact of his real oppression and torment at the hands of the devil and his humanity. He endured vicious temptation. 
We really have no clue as to the measure of temptation or pressure Satan brought against Jesus in the wilderness. But not only in the wilderness at that time. We may think, okay, he went through that and temptation was over. You notice what else Luke adds to this. Luke 4.13, the Bible says, When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Meaning the devil's not done trying to trip up Jesus and mess with him and oppress him. You see nothing but enmity between Satan and the Savior from beginning to end. Which leads us to number three. The last thing I want you to see with this first Christmas prophecy is that this prophecy provided a victorious Savior. A victorious Savior. And this is what we see, the whole point. The first aspect here in verse 15 of Genesis is that the Savior's heel would be bruised. The Savior's heel would be bruised. What do you mean by that? See, while Jesus showed his power over Satan and his forces on earth, it's included in this ancient prophecy. There's a promise that there would be a final victory and a crushing blow to the serpent. But that victory would not come without a cost, without pain inflicted upon this promised seed. God says in our text that his heel would be bruised. What does that mean? The heel is the lowest points of one body. It proves that the promised seed would endure some kind of affliction, but it would not be an affliction to the point in which he would be crushed. And here's what we find this affliction to be. It is the fact that he took upon himself a body for the purpose of death in order to save men, sinners. Hebrews 2.9, this is what ties in to Genesis 3. But we see, he, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the sufferings of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Right there it is. The bruising of the Savior's heel is his enduring the suffering of death. But not only death, he bore the wrath of God's judgment on sin. You see, the taste of death is something Jesus had never known, nor did he really have to know or deserve to know. But yet it had to be fulfilled in order for him to redeem mankind. And so this death, by way of crucifixion, while under the divine providence of God, was carried out by satanic attack. You understand that the hearts of the Jews and the hearts of the Romans, as they betray him and they take him captive and they nail him to the cross and they beat him without mercy, nothing is in their heart but evil. Evil. That is why Jesus also said, now is the hour of darkness. Right before he's betrayed. I find this interesting too. In John 13, 27, we know that there's a man by the name of Judas Iscariot that was used to betray Jesus. But listen to this. And after the sop, Satan entered him. That's Judas Iscariot. And Jesus said to him, that thou doest, do quickly. He was ordained that Judas would be this man. But here's an interesting thing to consider. While Jesus is saying this to Judas, the physical man in the flesh, what you're going to do, do quickly. You understand who else is present with Judas? Satan. The serpent. And so there, even in this moment, 
Jesus, the seed, is talking to that serpent from long ago and saying, what you're going to do, do quickly. Talking to him, the enmity, the warfare, right here. And so Satan, understand, who possesses Judas in some way, I can't wrap my mind around that aspect yet, but that's what happens. We see the warfare at work. Satan and the wicked men sought the death of Christ, and it was wicked hands that executed Christ. His suffering was immense from a physical standpoint and a spiritual standpoint. And while Satan may have thought such an act of killing the Son of God in flesh would be profitable for himself, the only thing he did in doing so was sealed his own demise and fulfilled the very words that God spoke to him long ago. Isn't that amazing, the sovereignty of God in that? Satan thinks he's doing one thing while actually he's fulfilling what God said would come to him. Which leads me to letter B is that the serpent's head would be crushed. I know it says bruised, but there's a more emphasis here when it comes to the defeat of Satan. You see, the greatest point in this first Christmas prophecy is that God says to the serpent of the promised seed, he will bruise your head. Now, when it comes to what is a fatal blow... Is it the heel or the head that is the worst of injury? The head. Because you take a blow to the head and that is the end. And how is it that we see this? In modern day, in the text of Scripture, through the New Testament, you you come upon a serpent today, what do you do if you want to get rid of it? You don't chop its tail off. I can tell you one thing, I'm cutting the head of that thing off, and even then, I'm not touching it. promised seed would crush the head of the serpent, giving him the fatal wound of, of putting the nail in the coffin to his endeavor. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, look at this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, partook of the same things, talking about flesh and blood. Why did he take on flesh and blood? Right here. That through death, Through death, this is the means, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That is the reference point for Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. Christ through death destroys the one who had the power over death, which is the devil, to deliver us. John the Apostle also wrote in 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Notice this last statement. The reason the Son of God appeared was to do what? Destroy the work. You see, with Jesus' death and then resurrection to follow, victory has already been settled. Though the devil still roams around in this world, his defeat is already pinned down. It's already settled. And you see, Christ has done all of this for you and I who believe so that we as sinners could be set free from the bondage that we have been placed in. I'll read you one final text and I'm done. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. To 
This is yet another passage showing his victory. Colossians 2, 13 through 15, but it ties directly to you and I who are believers. He says, and you, Christian, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Well, how is this how? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. Christian, that's your, that is your banner of truth. Wave it high. You've been made alive because of the cross of Calvary and the resurrection. This is why the prophecy here in verse number 15 of Genesis 3, it is indeed the first Christmas prophecy because it is the starting point that shows us this deliverer, see as the woman would come into the world to crush the serpent and in crushing the serpent he would set his people free save them from their sins and bring everlasting victory to those who believe that's worth rejoicing in that's worth celebrating the coming of Christ into the world